Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we bring you a conversation from the Digital Government Festival, which was hosted by the University of Melbourne. The festival involved leaders from government, industry and academia discussing critical issues, including the digital transformation of the public sector. Across two days and 25 plus sessions, participants had the opportunity to deep dive into a number of key topics. Now, during that conference, I was involved in a conversation with the founder and managing director of Propel, Roger Christie, and Stephanie Speck, the chief communications officer for the Victorian Department of Education and Training. It's a great conversation, and it begins with the voice of Roger Christie. Many of you will obviously have read uh, the, the, I suppose, the preamble to today's session. So why should public sector leaders be digital? Um, and I'll do a bit of a speaker introduction in a moment, but what I wanted to give us in terms of context is some uh, some comments that were made by uh, the Honourable Victor Dominello, the New South Wales Minister for Digital and Customer Service. And he said in a Financial Review article a little while ago, towards the end of last year, that COVID has busted sleepy governments into digital action. Now that the public have had a taste of what good looks like, they will punish governments that retreat back to their analogue doona. Some fairly stern and confronting words from someone who understands this environment incredibly well. But in 2022, where we're living now, and I can't call it a post-COVID era, but certainly one that's lived through it for the past couple of years, this reality applies to institutions as much as it does individuals. And I think Minister Dominello is a great example of someone who is doing this day in, day out on LinkedIn and Twitter and other digital channels. Um, but it's not just our elected leaders, it's also the bureaucratic and the public sector leaders who have a wonderful opportunity here. So what I thought I might do is just set the scene, introduce our speakers uh, before we dive into a Q&A, but I did just want to highlight um, some of the comments that are being made, some of the feelings that might be out there, um, ex- things that you're experiencing in your own worlds at the moment, um, that there is this expectation among citizens today that there is no opportunity to retreat, not to sound too dramatic, uh, the only opportunity is to move forward. So what might that look like? So let's go forward. So who have we got with us today? Um, well, obviously you can see them on your screens, but David Pembroke is the founder and CEO of Content Group, uh, which is based in Canberra, and who I would consider a, a public sector communications expert. Uh, and since David started Content Group uh, back in 1997, um, he's been dedicated to improving the effectiveness of government communications and engagement capability as a trusted advisor. Um, so thank you for joining us today, David, and I'm very much looking forward to your insights. I know we've had several conversations around this topic uh, in the past. And we're also joined by Stephanie Speck, who is the Executive Director of the Communications Division and Chief Communications Officer for the Department of Education and Training in Victoria. Now, Steph has actually lived and worked in more than 20 countries um, over the past 25 odd years. Yes, it has plenty of experience to draw from. So, and you've only just recently returned too, Steph. So it's good to have you here with us as well. Looking forward to, to dipping into your uh, treasure trove of experiences uh, from around the globe and also your reflections on what things are looking like here in Australia at the moment. Now I'm Roger Christie, but I, according to Google, I'm not necessarily the Managing Director of Propel. And in fact, if you do this right now, and I don't know where you're sitting, <clears throat> you're welcome to Google my name. This is the first image you'll find. No, it's not my dad. I don't even know the guy. But I can tell you that this is Roger Christie, according to Google. But it's Roger Christie who happens to be a 72-year-old ordained minister, cannabis advocate, and according to the image in the top right, a long-haired traveller. What's interesting about this and why I share this as a a very personal and relevant story for topics like this, and and we're talking about the topic of why should public sector leaders be digital, we cannot control what Google shows the world. 
So why is it important to be digital? Because the only opportunity you have to control what others see about you to ensure that you're not in this case, this is a very unfortunate thing for my namesake over in Hawaii, a, uh, someone who was who literally did hard time for uh, distribution of cannabis. If you want to avoid that scenario, you've got to be in it to win it. No one controls their digital reputation today. That is the truth. But whether we're active online or not, we all have one. We all have a digital reputation, something that people are using, whether you are a, a candidate looking at a career in the public sector, whether you are someone who is looking to partner with the public sector, whether you're a citizen who has a gripe with the public sector. Everyone out there is looking at this digital reputation today and using it to inform their decisions about whether they trust you, whether they like you, whether they want to get along with you or not. And to influence what they see <clears throat> to influence your own digital reputation, you need to participate online. As I'll talk to in a moment, there's simply no other strategy and, and particularly some comments that uh, <clears throat> were shared in that same Australian Financial Review article about the role of anonymity. So what does that actually look like for public sector leaders? Well, I thought I'd start and set the tone before I throw to our experts and, and start firing some questions at, at them. I thought I'd set the tone by sharing this one example of Minister Dominello, the, the very person who was making those comments in the Australian Financial Review. And what I've done here, I've just taken a comment that, that he shared, or a post, I should say, that he shared on LinkedIn a little while ago and highlighted a few sections here that might be of particular relevance. Now, he's having a Sunday coffee, working through some direct messages. And what's really helpful about this, I'm getting an insight into his life. And he loves a photo with a selfie, as you can see in the reflection um, in his coffee. He's taking a selfie on his mobile phone. This is the sort of thing that he does on a regular basis to build that identity and affinity with his audience online. And what he's saying is that he's listening to the comments that he gets. He's taking that feedback on board and in many cases, actioning that feedback. He's giving people a regular update on progress. And as you can see by the last comment here, he's also been quite transparent about the fact that he can't reply to every single message that he receives. So he's got team members who are helping him out to make sure that he's sifting through and getting to the responses that need to be made. Now, this is all well and good. It's easy, arguably, for leaders to have a digital presence that simply is broadcast messages out into the internet. What happens when that turns around? And I think this is what we want to get into today, the potential benefits that come from participating online. And in this case, it's a post from someone who I'm assuming he doesn't know, uh, but someone who's made a, a comment about uh, an experience they've had at Service New South Wales, tag Minister Dominello, as you can see, made a lot of comments and given a lot of context around their experience and where the challenges have come, which ends with this particular person running, screaming from Service New South Wales. Victor Dominello, MP, please help. This is where things get really interesting. And this is something that I'd like to unpack a little bit with our guests today. What, we ha what happens next is that you see people like Emma Hogan, Secretary for the New South Wales uh, Department of Customer Service and, and Digital, jumping on and saying, this doesn't sound like an experience you would like to have. So Damon Rees, could you look into this? Throws over to Damon, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Service New South Wales. Sorry to hear about the challenges that you've experienced, goes on to explain the complexities behind the scenario that this person's experiencing, and then goes on to tag other people in the post to let them know they should also look into this. And what's the sort of response that you get from people watching on? Everything's in the public domain online. Brilliant response, hashtag leadership. And this wasn't one comment that I pulled out of a whole range of anger. This is the general tone that's being felt there. You will always get name sales, you'll always get criticism from people online. But in this case, it's an opportunity to demonstrate that in this case, this agency is listening, their leaders are listening, and they are taking action, all very visible. So it's just one example that I wanted to show to set the tone for today. But importantly now, let's dive in. I'm very keen to hear from our experts who have joined us today. So David and Stephanie, and maybe if we can just start by uh, getting your reflections, I suppose, uh, acknowledging the comments that Minister Dominello made right up front, and given that example that we've just looked through, do you agree with this perspective that the public citizens will punish analogue governments? And, and what do you think punishment looks like in this day and age? Stephanie. Thanks, Roger. Uh, great to join you uh, in this conversation with David and good evening to everyone. It's really a pleasure to investigate and discuss this 
fascinating but rather fraught topic. I, I, and I want to say straight out that, um, yes, I do believe that um, public punish governments, and I believe we're seeing this this right now. I, the, the Edelman Trust barometer that we all know and love, I'm sure, reported this year um, that 61% uh, of Australians think that government is actively trying to mislead them not think that they may be, but actively, that the government is conspiring to put public, uh, to to cause mischief um, and disturbance amongst the public. So I think it's not that we're at risk, we're living through this age now of of a great gap between lack of confidence of public in, in government and in government institutions or bureaucracy or the public sector. And I really like the fact that you framed the opening statement around this, if you're you can't manage your digital reputation. It's becoming increasingly harder, but you can bet your bottom dollar if you're not doing it, someone else is trying to take that power away from you. So if you're not playing in that space, if you're not active in in managing what you look like, what you say, your reputation and voice online, then someone else will be using that as an opportunity. I also really loved that example that you gave because I think that speaks to um, immediacy and authenticity of public sector leadership. There's a problem. That's why we're in the public sector, to improve service, to solve the problems that everyday Australians anticipate and and encounter. Uh, And that's someone cutting through all the noise all the filters and saying, we see you, we hear you, we're going to do something about it. And that is the only thing that builds trust, immediate action um, spoken truthfully by the people who can who, who can do something about it. Absolutely. Thank you, Stefan. And David, did you have any comments on that? Uh, yeah, well, I think we've seen, you know, just in the last federal election, just recently gone, uh, the two major parties have recorded their lowest primary votes ever. Uh, And so when you talk about punishment, you know, the punishment's been handed out. Now, the the Federal Labor Party, um, in the good fortune to have enough of of those votes captured in the right places where they can now be majority government, but you can bet your bottom dollar that that uh, warning uh, has been well and truly heard. Uh, And again, what happened to the Liberal Party, and there's a lot of speculation that it could well happen to the Labor Party next time when uh, engaged, uh, thoughtful uh, local candidates, well-financed, well-organised, with very, very strong uh, digital footprints, uh, will will threaten, you know, the Labor Party at the next election. Uh, So... Yes, you know, there, I, there is a real opportunity now and it's this step change, I think, where I think everyone now gets it, everyone now understands it. Politicians know about the importance of content and communication and digital better than anyone. They're the ones who have been living and breathing it, particularly at a federal level, to try to get elected in the last, you know, in the last federal election. So they're very, very well aware of it. But I think it's now trying to mature the relationships between Uh, the agencies and departments and the political offices to try to find where is that space where you can have those respectful and well understood guardrails in order for people to be better informed about what government is doing to solve a problem uh, on their behalf. So I think, as Stephanie just said, we're, we're really now at a point where it's time to kick off this conversation and those conversations need to be had at the senior levels. Uh, so I'm just talking about Canberra, I suppose, for the moment. Uh, but clearly you can see that relationship there in New South Wales uh, where those three, you know, the you know, the minister to the secretary to the to the deputy, you know, worked very nicely that they're able to to interchange. Uh, but let's hope we start start to see more of that. Uh, and that we do get to see more of the great things that government do, because I know a lot of people on this call, the work that the public sector does is extraordinary. Um, And you can go into any government department anywhere in Australia, any agency, and just see the brilliant work that's being done. And I think the real opportunity now is to bring that to life, because that's when we'll start to uh, address some of the challenges that Stephanie was referring to in that Edelman Trust barometer. That's a really helpful framing. And I think that talking to big research reports like the Edelman Trust Barometer, things like the Brunswick Group's Connected Leadership Report, which doesn't focus necessarily on the public sector, but it's a, again, it's a treasure trove of um, of, of wonderful insights there. What these talk to is this reality today that people are seemingly less interested in the institutional message and more interested in the individual message. 
And so if I go back to, and we can unpack that a little bit, but it's almost like if that's not part of your capability, if it's not in your communications toolkit, you're missing a valuable opportunity because that's who people want to hear from. Edelman very much calls that out in terms of the individual, the role of the individual in stepping up and speaking out online. And we know that online scales far better than any other channel. So taking that and looking, I suppose, back at that Australian Financial Review article that I mentioned earlier, one of the other comments that came through was that anonymity doesn't work anymore. So if that is the case, if anonymity isn't an option, and we, we instead need to lean into this environment, what do public sector leaders, agencies, and I suppose ultimately society at large, because at the end of the day, as you're saying, David, if it's about informing people about really important pieces of information, society at large are losing if the anonymity strategy is taken. So, David, maybe you could give your own views on that. What do um, all these different stakeholders lose when anonymity is the preferred approach? Well, they lose access to this wonderful treasure trove of work. Like I know in my my daily work here at Content Group in Canberra, I'm it never ceases to amaze me just the brilliant work that is being done in so many different parts of the uh, you know federal bureaucracy. And what we're losing is the insight and uh, and and the understanding and the awareness of where the taxpayers' dollars are being invested. I can give you a, a simple example at the moment. We're working on a project for the Federal Department of Agriculture around the Future Drought Fund. It's about future drought resilience. But we've now filmed a number of these projects around Australia, and they're breathtaking. When you have a look at the work that's being done, when you're seeing the collaboration between academia and industry and local government and state government and federal government working on common problems, for the benefit of the community, that's they're the stories that we need to surface, and we need to surface them in modern ways, uh, not just a three-page brief with you know you know blocks of text, but show us you know the old thing, show don't tell. But we really do have to address this problem um, in the bureaucracy, and and the relationship between the elected ministers and those bureaucracies, because as someone very smart once said to me, you know, you don't get sacked for being invisible. So it really is that uh, mature conversation that needs to take place to say, well, listen, where, you know, where, where's my space and where's your space and how can we work to, together better to explain to people what we're doing? And I think that's the only path forward. And there's a huge amount of work to be done in terms of skills and capability and priorities. Um, but that's the opportunity, and that's where we, you know, wherever we start from today, let's hope we can improve each day going forward. Rog, can I offer a quick reflection, building on what David said there, and and coming back to, I think two important points is around scale and and message conduit. We want our information personal. <laughs> We want to know the person who's giving it to us because in a fractured society, and I think societies have fractured through COVID-19, we want to be able to know, get the news that matters to us from the people we trust. And that that, that circle has, has, I think, shrunk during um, extended uh, lockdowns, extended experiences with, with the pandemic. So the scale and conduit of message. So anonymity is a luxury of the past. We may rue the day when we got to be faceless bureaucrats, but I, I don't think that's the reality because people want to know who they're expected to trust. And I think leadership is visible. Leadership is always visible. There's a reason why, you know, when, when we used to fight physically, that leaders and kings were out the front of armies because they had a, a huge duty to perform and they needed people to see them executing that duty, not for their own glory. And I think that's probably the difference between when we're talking about ministers on public social media and, and bureaucrats on social media, not for their own duty, because they have a public service to, to improve to improve lives. So I think we think about scale, conduit, and the fact that leadership, good leadership is always visible. Well, thank you both. Um, <clears throat> I think touching on that kind of indiscriminate uh, forward momentum and the fact that we cannot undo some of those you know, comforts that we may have been used to in the past, there's another source, and David, you actually you quoted this in a, in a post that you wrote recently uh, on the OECD uh, report on public communication. I don't know if others have had a look at this uh, report that was put out last year, but it's well worth a read if you haven't. And in that, you, you talk to a point where you say the enterprise is being reinvented, whether we like it or not. 
The impacts of digital technology are indiscriminate. It doesn't respect org charts. It isn't interested in job descriptions. And it's such a powerful picture you paint of, you know, almost flagrant disregard that digital and, and technology has for what we think and feel. It doesn't really care. It, it, it's already here. It's already moving. And it's simply a matter of us keeping up. So in, in your views, and, and I understand your perspective on this from that comment, but maybe, Stephanie, if I can go to you, do, is the public sector adapting fast enough, in your opinion, or perhaps you know, maybe more constructively, what are some of the common things that hold agencies and leaders back? Mm. What do you think people could be doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great question. I think it's risk. Um, and there's different varieties of risk. You have your garden variety of risk, which is, I just don't know how to do it. Um, and so for many, and, and I think it's the reality that many um, secretaries of, of departments belong to an older age group. That's their function. They've climbed the career ladder. And they haven't been brought up with the diet of, you know, Googling ourselves and seeing that you're a 72-year-old hippie, Roger. Um, so there's, I, I don't know how to do it, and so I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to venture into that. There's a, there's a fear, a risk agenda there at work. Then I think there's another risk, uh, fear at play, which is if I do it, I won't be good enough, um, or maybe I'll do it the wrong way and 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 cause offence. And I think there are big question marks around um, how bureaucrats. Uh, both adhere to the code of conduct for public service, which is which is tight. And so it should be because it's there to protect me as a public servant, to protect my role in living out my values of impartiality, of transparency, of, of, of good, good conduct. So there's a line to walk between what is acting, being seen perhaps, or being perceived to be a cheer squad for the government, which is not at all the role of the public sector or the or, or bureaucrats leading departments, um, and the other side of the equation, which is demonstrating what good looks like in, in public sector administration. So in education, how are we making sure that kids are back at school? Not talking about the promises that the minister may have made, but the action of in, ensuring that kids can go to school. So I think it's risk. I'm not going to, I don't know how to do it. Maybe I don't, won't do it well enough. Maybe I'm going to cross the wrong side of the, the line. So I think it's critical for leaders. Um, and when I'm speaking to public sector leaders around the world, I say, let's get the why right first. We're not just going to open a channel and start posting. Let's really investigate why, why are you here and in this space. And I think being very clear about what your voice and your role is in that space. And your role is, as I said, not to be a cheer squad. Your role is as a public sector leader to show how public administration is best served by having a conversation in this space. So you should be talking about the how, what and when, not the big uh, glory statements about promises um, and, and reform, but how that reform is touching the lives through the processes of your department. I think that's really nice. And it's actually, um, you know, we talk, similar language in terms of finding that purpose and ensuring that it informs everything you do as a way to mitigate risk. I think to your point about the, some of those common risk factors that leaders, they feel, will I say and do the right thing? Will I cross the line? Whatever it might be. Um, having that clarity of purpose is critical to actually avoiding conversations that you shouldn't dip into or saying things that may, may come across as tone deaf. And I think the important factor in there that can sometimes get forgotten is the stakeholder on the other side. So considering who you're actually talking to through that channel, who may be listening, how they may be impacted by any particular message is as important as the conversation you want to have. Because if you understand their perspective and, and digital's wonderful at giving us that kind of always on access to the views and attitudes of others, you can use that public barometer to help you understand how to frame your own message to have it uh, better received. David, is there anything you would add to that around you know, this, this idea of risk and, and what's holding people back? Uh, no, but I, uh, well, yeah, okay. But again, I just think those mature conversations really, you know, try to understand that, you know, that that line between where where do you did where do the different sort of players play, uh, and I think I'm probably a bit with with both of you really in this sense of, you know, spending a bit of time listening, and I think that's your advice to people, Rods, is really, you know, if it's going to be LinkedIn that you think you might want to make a contribution you know, be in it for a while, pay a bit of attention because it can, it has significant impact. Um, and, and a place that I like to see uh, leaders in the public sector play is when they're reflecting on the work of the people in their agencies, because there's nothing that junior people like more than being seen 
by their leaders and being some pointing towards this is great. This is this is this is exactly what I'm very proud to lead this department because we did X. Um, person Y, did you know that they have just achieved whatever it is? So there's a really powerful internal um, opportunity to use social, um, which shouldn't be lost as well. So yes, external is important, but that internal, uh, when you're reflecting on the organisation, it just builds confidence, uh, it builds pride, and it builds that real worth of, you know, I'm a public servant because look at this great work I'm doing. And it's great work because my secretary has just, you know, said to all of the people who follow him, I'm doing great things. So I think there's a real opportunity there for public sector leaders. Absolutely right. Never underestimate the power of a like, a simple thumbs up to drive loyalty. And, and why wouldn't you amplify that internal goodwill externally? I'm completely on board with you. So what, what you're highlighting there, and I think what you were saying as well earlier, David, and if I can refer back to that OECD report too, because as I say, it's it's 200 pages of a really interesting uh, insight for those who have the time to look through it, or maybe just skim read certain sections that appeal to you. But it sounds like you're talking about this capability gap uh, and referencing the, the, the lack of confidence, as you're saying there too, Steph, and that perception of risk. What I found interesting in that report, it doesn't miss the mark, and your comments reflected this too, David, it doesn't miss the mark in its assessment of the, the investment uh, and, and the capability gaps in, the pub, in public sector communication. Certainly doesn't miss there. But in all those 200 plus pages, there was not one single reference to the crucial role that these public sector leaders themselves play in flying the flag online. There was a section that was even dedicated to public service leadership and capability that talks to talent attraction, as you're talking about here, David, uh, and, and retention, translating vision into action, almost as you were describing there, Steph, and building skills and competencies that create a learning culture within the public sector. It goes on to say that it's crucial for sector leaders to modernise their skills and empower their workforce by setting the example. So it goes on to say all these wonderful things, but there is not one reference to digital participation at that individual level as a way to do these things. So if I can throw something at you both, it, um, if, it, if it's crucial for sector leaders to attract and retain talent, to communicate vision, to create this kind of learning culture, and if there's overwhelming evidence, as you were talking to before, Steph, with the Edelman Trust Barometer that shows our, our preference for digital and, and we want to hear from leaders, uh, they're informing the choices that we make about where we work and, and what information we consume. Why do you think that we aren't seeing more public sector teams or more leaders harness this digital opportunity? What's missing? I think there's a couple of things. I think that our relationship with institutions and organisations has changed as employees. I don't think we think of work as somewhere we just go or work as location. I think we think of work as relationships. And um, I'm in a relationship with my organisation and my institution, which has its foundation on or was predicated on the fact that I know the people in my institution or organisation, and not just my immediate colleagues or my team members, but the person who's setting the vision for where we're going as 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 a as a team. So that that visibility of again of leadership is about that personal connection, and I think we can't be underestimated in this era of the Great Resignation. We want fabulous people in the public sector. We need fabulous people to develop and deliver fabulous services. And if what I expect as a young graduate or a person thinking about growing my career is to understand the person. Who's, uh, who is giving me my instructions about being a good public sector bureaucrat. If I want to understand that person, I've got to be able to see them, hear them, listen to them and understand their impact and their intersection with my life. I think too that David made a really interesting point there about this. We live in a crossover between what is external and what's internal. So before the advent, I think particularly of LinkedIn, you would have internal comms programs that were entirely based around newsletters almost, or staff forums as a way of engaging, shifting um, mindset, linking, you know, policy and purpose with people. But LinkedIn actually crosses that space. It, it bridges that gap between what was external, what I've said externally, and the way that that gets then mirrored internally. When I look through my feed, it's full of my colleagues. 
highlighting different service aspects of what we're doing in the department and people either liking or sharing or commenting. That builds community. It builds engagement with our with our purpose. And that's how you get people working well. That's how you get people contributing to efficient and um, you know effective quality, quality gains. And if I can just make one more point there too, I think too in the conversation, we're talking about how we maintain a public presence, but um, as in terms of our visibility and our interaction, but there's also the big important part of being online as a leader is you're gathering intel, aren't you? You're seeing what your staff are talking about. You're seeing what's being currently discussed in terms of, and that we've seen, I mean, how millions of discussions around what does good hybrid look like? And if I were leading an institution, I'd want to be participating, maybe sitting on the sidelines, but certainly understanding what my staff are talking about so I can develop that and mirror that back to them. So it's not just about how I come across online, it's as, as part of my purpose, but also what I can harvest from being online to help me be a more effective leader of my people. Do you think there's something in there, Steph, too, around the the mere presence of a leader um, giving permission? Like the OECD, OECD report talks about empowering uh, their their workforce. Is there something? Yes, it's about listening and learning, but even simply being present sends a message to others that it, this is where we should be. It's almost like what matters to my boss matters to me. So if they are there and they are leading from the front, therefore I should also be participating. And if they're talking. If they're sharing opinions on things like hybrid, as you're saying, it encourages me to have a voice. It empowers me to have a voice. And therefore, that discussion is enriched and we're getting a more diverse uh, set of voices and, and opinions and attitudes. Is that fair to say as well? It's something that they should be considering. Yes, with a caution added and a caveat as a good public servant, that we should firstly be guided by the code. And there are there are social media and digital conduct codes, and that's that's our North Star, as it, as it was. It says these are what we should be doing and shouldn't be doing. So I think within that broader framework of a safe operating space, so that's why I say don't leap in. <laughs> Think about your why, think about the how of what you're going to do and 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 discharge your duties in the online space um, according to your values as much as you do in the physical presence, you know, every day in the office. That's what I think is the cautionary note around that. Absolutely. David, was there anything you'd add to this? Yeah, well, well, I totally agree with what Steph just said in terms of understanding, you know, what's permissible. But I think it is best practice where you are enabling communication through your communicators and 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 spreading it far and wide rather than, you know, this is the department channel and we've got one way of getting the, the message out. I think modern practice is really about trying to find where are those networks that we can activate with good, useful, relevant, consistent content where people can start to build that awareness and understanding about what is taking place. And you can do that by activating these networks that are latent in your organisation. Um, so really, I think it's about thinking about how you can bring that to life. And, you know, every you know private sector organisation I know about, they're always talking to their staff about, hey, you know, share this with your audiences. Why don't you get the message out there? We want to build our reputation. We want to be known for what we do. Uh, and again, I just think there is just that reticence, uh, but it'll come, uh, it'll come, but uh, it'll just take a little bit more time because of, you know, the probably some of the traditional barriers that we've got to overcome that we've spoken about earlier. Yeah, and, and I think one of those being, you know, the code, not necessarily a barrier, but certainly some parameters to work within, as you're saying, Steph, I think that's an important consideration and making sure that people feel uh, informed and aware of what it means, what it what it doesn't mean as well, um, as opposed to a blanket black and white sort of response. I'm either on or I'm I'm offline. Um, I think they're important considerations. But what what we find when we're having conversations, and this applies across public and private sector, to be honest. But uh, when you're having conversations, focusing more on the outcome and what we're trying to achieve, and I think particularly in the public sector, that's important in terms of um, what outcomes we're trying to generate. If you put digital into that context and take that mindset around outcomes. Suddenly, things like, and if I can borrow your example from earlier, David, you know, if it's if it's around talent attraction or retention, if it's talking about diversity in the workplace, as an example, uh, and we've had a lot of those messages over the past couple of years, we see time and time again that there's almost a um, a fixation on what the agency or what the brand, the institution might be saying about its own diversity and inclusion policies or, or initiatives and how we're trying to recruit in specific roles. And you might go back and look at 
a, a range of or a suite of leaders and see that there's radio silence about diversity and inclusion. It's something that's never talked about. International Women's Day didn't feature. Reconciliation Week doesn't feature. And all of a sudden you go, well, where's the authenticity there? Mm. If, we, mm -hmm. if we're relying too much on the institution to push messages out that we expect from an institution, mm. but they're not being backed, by, backed up by key figures, what message might that send to candidates who then perhaps can't see themselves, you know, we, we can't be what we can't see sort of thinking. They can't see themselves working in that particular agency or members of the community, those citizens who then don't feel like the, the big brand campaigns translate into individual choices and actions. Do, do either of you have a view on that and, and maybe even examples of where you've seen it go well, if, if there is some that you can refer to? I certainly can, but keen to know your thoughts. Steph, over to you. <laughs> I can't think of of um, where I've seen that done well um, in Australia. I can I can see I can think of places um, overseas, and I think we we the the conversation will move in this this way anyway. But I was just thinking about your points about recruitment and alignment of what you say with with what you demonstrate, and I think that's what we're judged so much of our absorption of information is done visually now and it's very easy to spot the fakes um, and to spot the fact that you know you've got to, you have values written here but we're not seeing those digitally demonstrated so I think that is that should be an expectation um, and we we expect our leaders to walk the talk now and I think that the digital landscape is one area in which you walk the talk. I think too that one of the interesting if we think about how our public sector leaders are judged and adjudicated, I think it's often been around efficiency and effectiveness. You know, have you been able to manage your budget? Is um, Have you been able to deploy the reforms that the government promised? Uh, has service delivery improved? And I wonder if we put a bigger emphasis on the ability to communicate and engage staff, if some of this talk you know, would, would recede because it would just be seen as a natural. Well, if, if I'm also being judged, not just on my ability to manage budget, but also to engage staff, attract and retain the right people. Um, so perhaps if those skills were elevated, perhaps things we've traditionally seen as soft skills, but I think are foundational skills, maybe there's a broader conversation about, you know, KPIs for, for our leaders and, and not just our leaders, but how that trickles down through an organisation. And I wonder if, that's something that we should be um, speaking with leaders uh, about, that this is core competence now. Um, if we're talking, we spend a lot of time in agencies and organisations talking about how we make processes more efficient by bringing them online. But how do we improve the way our staff feel about their job and therefore the way they deliver their job by the conversations we have in this digital space? Yeah, I think there, there's something to that. I think that's a really smart idea. And again, it goes back to that point about those key mature conversations between the elected officials and the senior people in these departments to try to work out where that space is. So as exactly as you say, Steph, like that is going to help to solve a critical challenge um, that every government, every government around Australia has, which is attracting and retaining um, high quality people. So if it's going to help to solve that problem, it might say, well, and again, I suppose if you if you couch it in the terms of this could save us millions and millions of dollars, uh, maybe that'll start to get people's attention. Mm. But um, it really does go to this sort of evolving space that we're in now. And I'll be really interested just to see, uh, you know, those types of conversations and having conversations with leaders at both levels about these things and just to see what the appetite is like. Um, but inevitably what will happen, something will go wrong and then someone will lose their job and, you know, everyone will slam shut and everyone will run away. And, you know, it might might take a while for it to come again, but who knows? Um, but look, the change will take place. Um, it will mature over time but it'll only mature as those relationships mature and it comes back to those really, really important uh, because that's, you know, that's where the authorising environment is at that higher level. So that's really mm -hmm. where those conversations have got to take place. Mm -hmm. And I think picking up on the example you shared at the beginning, Roger, um, and I've forgotten, excuse me, the secretary's surname, Emma, what Sorry. an incredible example she set 
she said, I'm here in this space and I'm watching and I've, I've heard you and I expect my department to act now and act quickly. That's an extraordinary example for a leader, a leader to set. Um, and so I think that not only empowers her staff to think that that's a good way to act, to be present, to register and then to do something. But she's setting an expectation that this is how my department, we we are discharging our duty to the public in our terms of our responsiveness um, and fixing issues that the public is encountering. So it's not just empowering, it's setting expectation. Absolutely, in a public environment with a date stamp and a time stamp on it, mm. I, I completely agree. Mm -hmm. And I think, <clears throat> so it is that, you know, expectations and empowerment and setting an example. I, I think David's point there too around Risk is a really important one to explore, though, because I find it helpful. We should start the conversation as we are, and hopefully this is helpful for, for people listening in to also then start a conversation back in their offices. You should start the conversation as opposed to putting heads in the sand, because when you look at risk through a different lens, if we're not talking about issues like diversity and inclusion, we won't mm -hmm. attract the talent mm -hmm. who with whom that resonates. But if we don't participate in digital channels, we avoid the risk of saying the wrong thing which risk is more important and to your point david around the cost one thing might might cost us it might be a short-term pain the other might be long-term talent drain and, and i think that's the risk that we we really should be looking at here so but if, if i can take us from sort of dark place i know it's getting darker outside but not a dark place but certainly we take us into a more positive space and maybe share some of these uh, good examples that, that you talked to before, Steph, and if I can link the two here, one of the wonderful examples, and I remember having a conversation uh, with a very senior bureaucrat not too long ago, and she was talking about her own experience of literally finding a candidate reaching out to her because of what she was saying and doing on LinkedIn, who reached out and said, you know, well, not exactly in this way, but over the course of several conversations, it transpired that she was looking at a range of different roles. I'd consider this to be high-performing young talent, looking at a range of different roles. She could have gone down the path of something that was very, um, you know, exciting, new, different uh, things attached to um, uh, sustainability, climate change, the ESG world that that we're very familiar with. Looking at one of those interesting tech startups, or looking at something that's in the government space. And I think if you put those two things side by side, most people would say, oh, choose the startup for excitement and energy every day. And that's the perception that, that some parts of the public sector have. In this case, it was the, the leader's individual actions, her attitudes, her values, her, um, to your point, David, her treatment of staff in a public environment that led this individual to choose to work with government. Those are the opportunities that are missed when we don't participate. They're the opportunities that are missed when we don't have a digital presence. So I think if we can if we can use that as almost a bit of an example, I'm keen to know from both of you, and maybe Steph, if I can start with you, you know, where do you look to or where do you point others to for inspiration around best practice in this space? Is it is it onshore or even offshore from you know the, the many places that you've worked? Who's leading the way that people listening in today might be worth going and having a look at online to see how those leaders are, are doing their thing online. Yeah, I think this is such new territory that I I don't feel confident and co comfortable to recommend anybody really in in at, at this moment in this space because I think that one of the Come things on, I've noticed get off the fence. returning to Australia <laughs> it's my natural position off the fence, believe me. <laughs> but um but for returning to Australia I've been really stunned actually about and the backward nature of, of, of the use of digital communications within the public sector. And I think that's perhaps because we we live in a functioning democracy where there are other environments for people to make their voices heard, elections. <laughs> yeah, where you, you know that you get to vote and you're counted and as a woman, my vote equals anyone else's vote and it's, it's you know, it's registered. And so I think there are other avenues, but I, in some of the countries I've worked in, the photo that I, that I shared for this is holding up a, a sign, a selfie sign for uh, elections in Iraq, where as the government, um, we went, hard online to build confidence in the public institution that was charged with holding free, sorry, that's a puppy in the background, free and, you know, um, and transparent elections. And we knew that that digital space was a key space to, to build trust. So I think some of the best examples of this are actually in countries where 
they've emerged from conflict, they're needing to build a citizen, a citizen engagement with government, and they know that if they're not present in that space, particularly with growing youth populations, they've lost a vital chance to connect, engage, talk about reform, and most importantly, get people to adhere to reform. So I think, if I think, I, I look at departmental heads in places like Iraq, uh, in places like Somalia, um, in the Ukraine at the moment, um, where there are really real life examples of of needing to get it right because uh, safety and security of citizens is, is is on the line, and and a democracy growing or failing is is on the line. That that's a really interesting point, and it's something we could probably explore in a great amount of detail. Even even the Ukraine example, I remember seeing, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, and someone will correct me, but I, I think it was the Minister of Defence in the Ukraine reaching out, using Twitter to reach out to some fairly senior uh, private sector and public sector leaders uh, and government leaders around the globe. Uh, and one of those interactions was with, you know, the the very familiar face of Elon Musk on Twitter asking for for Starlink to try and get access into the Ukraine when you know things were being shut off around them, um, and that response actually led to a positive outcome in terms of access to the internet and so on and so forth. Now, who knows the widespread impact of that? It is interesting to see leaders across sectors using these mediums to, as you say, protect the interests of citizens in this case, and that's a fairly unorthodox approach. But yeah, D David, did you have any? like that i mean that's a very unique example around citizen reform that, that steph's given us but yeah are there any like that that come to mind for you it was good to see steph jump off the fence there straight into it it's good to see <laughs> didn't take uh, long did look, it I... <laughs> yeah, that's right uh, look I'll, I'll throw a couple out there um look i thought the australian electoral commission did a really good job during the recent election to to get engaged, stay engaged to address mis and, and disinformation. And again, it was a um, you know, very active, content driven, quite clear and specific what they were trying to do. But they, you know, they brought to it with you know, a bit of a smile on its face. And really, I think often we forget to celebrate, you know, just how great uh, a system of government that we have and a wonderful country that, that we are. And I thought that I felt that I got that tone, uh, which I thought they got right. Um, I think going back a few years, I think the police departments, I think it was Queensland the police department that really led the way uh, a number of years ago about that personality driven, uh, but really directed towards solving uh, problems that they had, uh, but doing it with a real uh, engaging uh, style, which I thought, you know, would, well, certainly was picked up by all over the place. So uh, I thought that was a really good example of a public sector organisation understanding the audience, understanding its tone, understanding its objectives and its mission and what it was trying to achieve, but then being able to communicate really effectively. Um, and for a couple of personalities, getting back to this point around leaders, uh, the, the departmental secretary here in Canberra of the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, a gentleman by the name of Andrew Metcalf, uh, really good very engaged, lovely guy, and you know who he is. Um, and his people absolutely love him because they feel like they know him. Um, and everyone from the you know the youngest person in the organisation to the people he work with, he treats people with respect, and he really uh, I think uses uh, the platform very well. And also the e safety commissioner um, Julie Inman Grant here in Canberra, um, she is another who uh, is well as you would hope that she's. She, you know, very effective in the space because she's trying to influence a number of people, not just here in Australia, but around around the world. Uh, she's another who I would sort of give a bit of a shout out to as well, because she does a, a good job in, in helping you to understand the work that they're doing, why they're doing it, where their priority is, pointing you to different uh, places where you can learn a bit more. Uh, so again, just great, great examples again of you know good use of um, of of the different platforms and and different uses of content. Really good examples there, and I agree with you around Julian Mangrant too is a wonderful example to look at. And and as you say, travels the globe. Some of the work that she's done recently on LinkedIn, just highlighting the uh, the the global pedigree 
that that eSafety Commission has based on the the work that she's done through the partnerships that she's sharing on LinkedIn, I think is first rate. It, it just elevates the status of, of the work that they're doing here in Australia. Um, and if I could just touch on the AEC as an example that you gave, um, the Australian Electoral Commission. So we actually, we did a, a podcast conversation with Evan Eakin-Smith, who's at the AEC, and we actually asked him about Commissioner Rogers and, and what his role was or wasn't online. And it was really interesting getting his views around <clears throat> it was something that they have talked about and it was something that they were considering in the lead up to this election. Did Commissioner Rogers actually have a specific or a different um, voice that required its own presence? And, and it's something that they really grappled with in the lead up to the election. And they ended up deciding that, no, we wanted to invest all our eggs in the brand basket. And they've set a, a, a reputation strategy, not a social media or a digital strategy, but a reputation strategy, reputation management strategy, which included social and digital. His role was more the mainstream, uh, the, I suppose, the traditional media engagements and the brand of the team. And if anyone who's listening hasn't seen what they're doing on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and others, please, by all means, go and have a look and have a laugh. Um, it's not done yet, even though the election is. Uh, go and have a look at that one. Um, but it's interesting that he did say Commissioner Rogers and, and his identity and the way that he represents the agency, because essentially, well, the authority, because essentially that is it. That's what the commission is there about. Um, he should, in the future, um, look very hard at whether there's a, a role for him to play alongside the brand voice. So it's an interesting one there. Just to, just to jump in there, Rog, I think you've just, for me, you've just hit on something that is just so fundamentally important about the maturity of this space. And it's really to start talking about it as, you know, in business terms of, you know, objectives, reputation management, understanding that these channels only exist to achieve business objectives, and as we mature, it's got it's all going to fall away in time. That we won't we won't be talking about social, we won't be talking about digital, because that's pretty much what everything will be. But we we have to start talking about it in in terms that make sense around the business and around achieving business objectives, because that's where the conversations will resonate. Again, I go back to those higher levels of conversation. If you can go in. You don't go in talking about a great social media strategy. You want to go in and talk about those problems that you're trying to solve. Oh, and by the way, this is how we're going to do it. So think about it around business and have your conversations. What are the things that are keeping your leaders up at night? What are those 3 a.m. questions that they're looking at? And how can you go to them with a solution around that, which just happens to um, rely on, you know, content uh, digital, uh, social, whatever it might be, but couch the conversation in the business solution and in the problem that you're trying to solve, and you'll get a lot more traction than you will if you just go in there saying, hey, I want to do, you know, this WYSIWYG thing because it's all great. Uh, exactly right. And if we can go back to what you were saying earlier too, Steph, around that risk around should I enter this environment? Will I say the right thing? Will I say the wrong thing? Those sorts of concerns start to evaporate. Because what's happening, as you're saying, David, when you couch it that way, digital becomes an obvious choice. My own participation becomes an obvious choice. So the question is around to or not to. The question is how to, as you were saying, Steph. How do I now build the capability? How do I start to feel comfortable in this space? And that's hopefully where you know conversations are going to go with teams, which is, you know, the writing's on the wall here. We can either opt out until we, we do feel comfortable and, and just cop the punches as they come, or if we're going to invest in this environment, listen first, understand what the attitude is out there, define that purpose as you're saying, work out very clearly what you intend to do in this space, and then start to build capability around it. And if you can do that, you won't be worse off. I, I promise you, you will not be worse off if you take those very measured steps. So look, this is been very I suppose that was a very nice <laughs> thing as we as we move towards the end of our session nice thing to um to finish up on but if I could just I suppose get some practical advice from both of you and maybe if I can if I can present two scenarios I suppose one is the person who might be listening here going well this sounds all well and good and and no I'm not in the middle of a, a major citizen reform as you were saying Steph but but I feel like I might be behind the eight ball I'm not sure uh, what you're talking about seems way too advanced for me. What are some of the really practical steps that people can do? It, there's a very early on things in David, in your view, maybe it's one, two, three things. 
where do you think people should start if they're really early on in this journey to ensure that they get off on the right foot? Uh, register, uh, you know, download the app and find the places that you want to participate in and loiter. <laughs> loiter until you feel comfortable. Uh, observe, learn a little bit about, you know, the use of hashtags and the ability to be able to, you know, be able to uh, put imagery up to support posts and, and just play around a bit, but be present. Um, you know, you don't have to jump out and jump in straight away. You don't have to have a million things to say, but I think it's the advice that you always give to people is that, you know, it's listen first. So I think that's what I'd, you know, get on, get started and, and, uh, and be patient. Uh, because, you know, it's the long game. You know, this isn't going anywhere. It's not going to finish anytime soon. Uh, you know, I used to be on Twitter for a long time, but then I got sick of it and then I haven't gone back. You know, I just decided that it really wasn't for me. I just found it, was, I found it distracting more than anything else. Uh, I'm not a big participant in Facebook either. My wife's on Facebook, so I keep saying to people, if you want to know about me, you know, just follow her. Um, so, you know, I think we're all different. You know, we all consume... Uh, content in different ways. So, just, and again, it goes back to what Steph was saying around purpose. You know, well, what, why? If there's no reason, don't do it. But if the, if you do feel that there's a reason, do get started. But I do think that point that you made right at the beginning around digital reputation is a good one. Um, and so, really, I do think you have to have some, uh, uh, you have to give some thought to how you are going to participate. But don't feel like you you know, have to come out of the gates at a million miles an hour and, you know, give everyone a you know, comment and share and like and, you know, because you, you won't have time to get, you know, other work done. But, um, yeah, just get started. That's, that's very good advice. Just get started. And I think that your point about you don't need this back catalogue of content ready to go on day one. It's okay to listen. It's okay to observe. It's okay to participate and ease your way in. And I think one thing that we haven't actually talked about at all in this conversation, we're talking about why public sector leaders should be digital, the unfair leader advantage that any leader has, as you were saying, that the simple like speaks volumes. It just has such a greater impact than, you know, if I can call it a layperson's like. There's a reality around algorithms online that if you are a leader, if you're someone who comes with credibility or authority, even if you're starting out online, you will naturally get more attention. Rightly or wrongly, you will naturally get more attention and have more sway online. So harness that unfair advantage that leaders have. They can certainly get more cut through than the brand in some case. Steph, if I can ask you a slightly different question, I suppose, it's along the same lines, but maybe from the perspective of you know, resources, or you know, what sort of resources, what sort of places, or even authorities on this topic, where should people be going to get the information they need to help them take those, those first steps? It's a great question. And I think this is, as, as we've said many times, this is such a new space. We won't be asking this question in, in five years, maybe three years, because it will be so self-explanatory. I think firstly, go to David, um, because David <laughs> and his team know what they're doing and they've worked across private and public. So. They're good, really good sense checkers and 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 sounding boards and 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 good at that strategy. So that's my first um, that's my first recommendation. The second one is that this is a process of trial and error. And if you're working in a department and you're working to a leader of a department, you've got to give them confidence that they can wade in, um, and wade in safely uh, and and extract or, or get back on shore if they need to. So I think, uh, unfortunately, there's very little the resources in this space and I'm that's why I'm glad that David and his group are starting to build in this space because I think that's we need those signposts along the way if I can just actually um quickly come back to the question you asked David because I think um those practical steps for people who are advising upwards and trying to convince people know your boundaries so know your codes around your, your public sector codes in this area identify your why and then choose your themes that will help to activate that why. Um, and link value with business objectives. So um, you've, your leader will make decisions based on what is good for the department. So you've got to be able to demonstrate why them being visible um, and leading in a digital environment is good for the department. And clearly demonstrate other examples of good practice because people will wade in when they feel safe and they can see other colleagues and compatriots doing the same thing. So get your why right, identify your themes, link value with business objectives and show examples of, of good practice so that people feel feel, feel comfortable uh, and, and know your boundaries. Wonderful. And if I can steal your last point and 
blend the last two questions to give my two cents. I think that's where industry examples are incredibly helpful. So if I can encourage um, anyone listening today and wondering where to start, a very, very safe step, even before you do your own thing, is just to go and look at some of those industry examples and see what others are doing out there to draw inspiration from, even criticism, to look at it and go, how did they handle that? Why? What can I learn from that? Feel free to critique them. But I think looking at those other examples and, and giving leaders confidence that people are already doing that. We've talked about some of those examples, some of the ones that I'd call out. Go and look at the, the likes of Amanda Yates um, in Queensland Transport and Main Roads. Uh, Mike Kaiser also in Queensland. Amy Brown, uh, New South Wales Government. Looking at these people, uh, looking at the New South Wales Customer Service Department, again, as an example, because through those examples of people who are more established, it's almost a way to leapfrog and get a couple of steps ahead um, and not have to go through the same growing pains that, that everyone else has over the past you know, 10 or 15 years if they started that, that long ago. So there you go, my conversation with Roger Christie and Stephanie Speck at the Digital Government Festival. And a big thanks to the University of Melbourne for allowing us to use that content on the GovComs podcast. My name's David Pembroke. I'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.